You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com tech. I would say every privacy law since 2016 has used GDPR as a reference, sometimes copying it, sometimes deviating from it deliberately, but at least looking at it. And it's surprising, right, that companies and organizations actually uh, like privacy laws. Uh, I think in some sense, maybe it's setting a a consistent baseline uh, around the world as more adopt uh, interoperable privacy legislation that are more similar to each other than different, which is good. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Caveat, the CyberWire's privacy surveillance law and policy podcast. I'm Dave Bittner, and joining me is my co-host, Ben Yellen, from the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security. Hey, Ben. Hello, Dave. On today's show, Ben has the story of the FCC banning AI robocalls. I've got the story of efforts from the U.S. to lead the way in global AI policy. And later in the show, my conversation with Harvey Jang, Vice President, Deputy General Counsel, and Chief Privacy Officer from Cisco, sharing privacy concerns around generative AI, the trust challenges facing businesses, and the attractive returns from investment in privacy. While this show covers legal topics and Ben is a lawyer, the views expressed do not constitute legal advice. For official legal advice on any of the topics we cover, please contact your attorney. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. All right, Ben, we've got some interesting things to share here. Do you want to kick things off for us? Sure. So a few weeks ago, we had the New Hampshire primary election, and many New Hampshire residents received a call purported to be from President Joe Biden telling them not to vote. Turns out this call was generated by AI. It was entirely false. It potentially misled people uh, into believing that there wasn't really a reason to vote. In this case, it didn't impact the election. Biden, without even being on the ballot, won by a lot. But it kind of set the stage for what might happen in November, where these automated messages, these robocalls that come into people's phones, might submit false information based on the use of artificial intelligence. So with that in mind, the Federal Communications Commission took action, and they have outlawed unwanted robocalls generated by artificial intelligence. Uh, To do this, they are referencing a 20-year-old law entitled the Telephone Consumer Protection Act. Uh, And under this act, any voices that are so-called or uh, that are deemed to be artificial 
are banned from uh, calling people's devices, cell phones or landlines. Uh, so the interpretation here is that AI-generated voices count as artificial for the purpose of the Telephone Communi- Consumer Protection Act. Uh, one thing that surprised me here is that this holding was unanimous. The FCC is a bipartisan board. Uh, it has Republican and Democratic members, but we came up with not only a unanimous decision, but one that came within a few weeks of this high-profile incident. Uh, and we got this really interesting quote from the chairwoman, Jessica Rosenworcel, who said that, well, this seems like something that might happen far off into the future, it's already here. And I think the situation in New Hampshire kind of hammered this home. There are bad actors using AI-generated voices in unsolicited robocalls. Um, they are extorting vulnerable people. Uh, they're imitating politicians and celebrities uh, with accurate replications of their voices. And uh, it really required this agency to take action. Now, this is something that could always be reversed if there's uh, a new makeup of the Federal Communications uh, Commission. We saw reversals on other issues between the Trump and Biden administration, most specifically on net neutrality. But I think this has some staying power uh, just because it seems like such an obvious step to make use of the statute and to ban these very misleading calls. So I have a couple of thoughts here. First of all, I, by by uh, using such an old law, I'm trying to imagine uh, what an AI robocall would have sounded like when this law was passed. And I, I'm thinking, uh, and Ben, this is before your time, but there was an arcade game called Berserk back in the days, and it had a synthesized voice that said, computer alert, computer alert. You know, it's <laughs> like it, was, it sounded like a, you know something from uh, the, the original Battlestar Galactica series. Um, Nerd alert. <laughs> thank you. Thank you very much. I will uh, proudly wear that badge. But the other thing, I, I guess, uh, if we go up a level here, is it illegal to to make a campaign call that doesn't tell the truth? It is not. Uh, as long as that call is... So, I mean, I guess false and deceptive advertising uh, is a cause of action, and you might bring that action against a specific party, oftentimes kind of as a public... Uh, a public stunt, a publicity stunt. Candidates will make complaints to the Federal Elections Commission based on false or deceptive advertising. Uh, it's very rarely enforced just because we have trouble defining what truth is. Uh, and some something that might seem to be just 100% false might actually be a political attack, at least somewhat grounded in reality or based on perception. Uh, so like... Biden supports replacing the American people with illegal immigrants. Like, we can, you and I can sit around and say that that's entirely false, but that's not necessarily a fact based inquiry. As opposed to, uh, you should sit out this election, that really straddles the line and the fact that it was artificial intelligence. While it was purporting to be from the president of the United States, that's what's false and misleading here. So it's not really forbidden. I guess it's technically forbidden to give out straight false information, but it's so rarely enforced. I think this is an egregious example where we can make use of the law, knowing that just by the fact that it was done by artificial intelligence, that's what creates this misleading effect. Yeah, I I guess what I'm getting at here is is trying to parse out where does free speech intersect with the desire to uh, not screw up an election, (laughs) right? 
Yeah. Uh, I mean, that's a very interesting dilemma. I don't think there is a clear answer. You know, I think we can manipulate our campaign laws so that at least people can evaluate statements based on the people purported to be saying them. It's newsworthy if President Biden were to have recorded anything, uh, recorded anything on uh, a device that was sent to somebody's phone. I mean, that's newsworthy whether what he says is true or false. He made the affirmative decision to do that. People can judge for themselves uh, the veracity of that statement. He can be held to account for it. The media can ask him questions. None of those fail-safe mechanisms are in effect when nefarious actors are creating false videos through artificial intelligence. And I think that's really the dividing line here between information where you could say, well, this politician's statement, it did come from the politician, but you know, factcheck.org said it was false, so we should ban it. I think it's a far cry from that to what we have here, where the statement came from a nefarious actor and not from the person that it was purported to be from. I think that's just a very clear dividing line. I think that's what the FCC is recognizing uh, with this decision. Yeah. I, I, I just, it's just fascinating to me. I mean, I think about like AI versus uh, a mimic, you know, someone who's really good at doing impersonations of someone. And I'm also thinking about what if you got a call from, let's say either a mimic or AI but they don't identify themselves as being the person who they're clearly mimicking. Where it's like, hi, What's the measure I'm of a... proof here? Right. Yeah, like, you I know mean... who I am. You you recognize my voice, you know, and here's, right. what I, here's what I have to share with you today. But it's not explicitly Joe Biden. You know, he's not saying at the beginning of the call, hi, this is Joe Biden telling you not to vote. I think there might still be a cause of action under the Telephone uh, Consumer Protection Act. Uh, because the text of that act restricts telemarketing calls and political calls count as telemarketing calls um, with pre-recorded messages that might mislead the recipient. Uh, and it requires telemarketers to obtain prior express written consent from consumers before they're even allowed to robocall them. So uh, I think what this decision does is just bring AI voices, whether they are properly or not properly identified under that same rubric. So in, in that sense, I, I think uh, even if this person, the nefarious actor making the call, doesn't explicitly identify themselves as Joe Biden or whoever the AI voice is trying to mimic, I still think you could have a cause of action here. You know, you point out that uh, it's notable that we had a unanimous vote from the FCC, uh, and I think it is. That leads me to uh, one of my personal pet peeves here, which is the degree to which politicians tend to carve themselves out of any restrictions when it comes to things like robocalling and do not call lists. Right. Most people in our audience probably uh, share uh, <laughs> their, their, my annoyance. <laughs> so, so I guess it's noteworthy that um, politicians are included in this at all because it is so it is so routine for them to carve themselves out of anything restricting them from doing anything. So I agree in a sense, but I think it's worth noting that this statute that they're basing this decision on refers to calls that come from an artificial or an artificial robocall. It isn't still entirely legal for some company to call you uh, and it's not in artificially created voice, but they're still robocalling. It's still a recorded message, but it's like, hey, this is Bob from the car dealership, and 
we're having a 50% sale on whatever. Like that could be a robocall and it would still be legal. Just as a politician could record a robo record a robocall saying, Oh, this is President Bill Clinton, you know, <laughs> right, reaching right. out to you, telling you to vote for Joe Biden. Like that's still legal. It just can't be artificially created. So I'm not sure necessarily that the poli- I, I sympathize with your overall point because we've talked about many times that politicians have exempted themselves from some of these statutes. But here, there's that clear dividing line between artificially created and just a simple robocall that's a recording of somebody's real voice. The clarity of this decision is saying that voices created by artificial intelligence count as artificial for the purpose of this law. I think that was a very clear uh, decision to make. I think it makes intuitive sense, and I'm just glad that the FCC went through with it. Yeah, it really seems like they're they're trying to nip this in the bud. I mean, you you talk about that call with Biden in New Hampshire, and uh, they've been aggressive in going after f- f- the company that uh, allegedly did this. It's a company out of Texas, I believe, and uh, you know they're they're <laughs> they're they are uh, they're having at it with them. Yeah, and they have a lot of tools at their disposal. So they have the authority under the statute to bring civil action. Uh, you can require them to pay fines. Uh, they also, uh, the statute empowers state attorneys general to bring causes of action uh, because you can bring causes of action in state courts, so it can be brought by a state attorney general based on a violation of federal law. And now we have this clarifying statement saying that AI-generated robocalls would violate federal law under this FCC precedent. So I think it does give a lot of power to state attorneys general, 36 attorneys general, uh, which by definition, I believe, uh, includes members of both political parties, already wrote to the FCC saying that they wanted them to make this interpretation so that they could go after uh, some of these bad actors. And the AGs got their wish here. uh, And uh, the FCC did follow through on it. Well, I mean, let, let's uh, pause and note uh, a little bit of uh, bipartisan agreement here uh, in an otherwise divided world, right? Yeah, it seems like something we should all be able to agree on. You know, don't mislead people with fake voices. Seems like a no-brainer. <laughs> it's, it's a low bar, but we'll take it. It's a low we'll bar, take, but we, we'll we take have the to win, take, take the win, Ben. <laughs> I will take the W. <laughs> you we will go. have to embrace uh, even something that seems like an intuitive common sense measure. It's not always clear that uh, Congress critters in Washington or our federal agencies are, are going to follow that common sense. So, yeah, I'm taking the dub. What a world. What a world. <laughs> All right. We will, uh, we will have a link to that story in the show notes. Uh, my story this week comes from the folks over at Lawfare. Uh, this is an article written by Alexandra Mushka and Alan Charles Raul. Uh, this is what I would categorize as a long read. Uh, we will do our best to uh, present it uh, concisely here. As the kids uh, say, TLDR. That's right. It's, uh, and, and this is a, a write-up about how the U.S. is planning to lead the way on global AI policy. Um, this is really interesting to me, Ben. I guess the, the thesis here is that the U.S. has signaled its intention to lead international efforts in regulating AI, um, and this is a bit of a shift from their uh, historical attitude towards data privacy and regulation, uh, which has been kind of, certainly compared to the EU. When you look at things like GDPR, um, seems like the U.S. has had kind of a more wait and see kind of approach. But uh, according to this article, the U.S. is being more assertive in their role in shaping global AI governance. I have to say, Ben, uh, 
this article surprised me a little bit for that very reason that um, with the inactivity we see in Congress, and as you and I have talked about many, many times, the what seems to be no real movement towards any sort of federal data privacy regulation, it's a little surprising to me that uh, this would be an area where we'd be seeing some attempts at global leadership from the administration. What do you make of this? I'm not sure I'd buy it, to be honest. I hate yeah. to be a cynic here. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that was my reaction as well. I guess what this piece has going for it is it cites the Biden administration's rather aggressive executive orders to uh, regulate AI. Some of those are non-enforceable. They are guidelines for private industry. Private industry has adopted many of these guidelines, which is great, uh, but they're not really subject to enforcement. Some of them are really dependent on the administration enforcing them. So there was a draft policy for AI in government uh, which regulates the use of AI within federal agencies. So that is binding. Agencies are required to to file that or uh, or to follow that uh, guidance. But we could have an election result in November and January 20th, 2025, you know, that regulation is wiped off the books. So I'll start with that. The fact that we don't have a federal statute in this space, uh, it just, in the absence of that, it makes it hard for me to believe that the U.S. is really going to be a leader on this, especially because... GDPR in the European Union is in the process right now of instituting regulations against AI. Uh, and the other reason I think it might be hard for the U.S. to lead is just the structure of our system of government. We have 50 separate states with 50 different perspectives on how to regulate AI. Uh, you know, in some cases, like related to data privacy, one state takes the lead and everybody adapts their data privacy practices to follow that state. Uh, we're kind of in the infancy of that process. And so I just don't know exactly what that's going to look like. If one state passes regulations that are so strong that they, ended up, that they end up dominating the industry, or if it becomes more of a patchwork the way it is uh, with some elements of, of data privacy. So I'm just kind of skeptical of the whole premise. Uh, but, you know, maybe, maybe I'll be uh, pleasantly surprised. Yeah, I, I share your skepticism, and, and I, I read this article with great interest just to, to kind of, because I, I guess it it, uh, it challenges my, my preconceptions, which are evidence-based. Uh, <laughs> sure, so, yeah. Your you preconceptions know. are evidence-based, but everybody else, no, I'm just kidding. Yeah, thank you, Ben. Yeah, so, all right. <laughs> you, you sit up on, on my shoulder there and uh, remind me when, I, when I'm uh, letting my biases peek through. Exactly. Um. One of the things that they highlight here is that um, in contrast to the EU uh, having a, what they describe as a comprehensive AI act, that the U.S. is coming at this on a sector-by-sector -sector basis. And they make the point that this could allow the U.S. to be more nimble uh, to adapt to AI, which they, of course is, you know, we're on the bleeding edge of, of AI. And... Uh, and they say this could allow the U.S. to uh, to focus on risk assessment and mitigation uh, across different sectors and do so with a bit more flexibility. Do you think there's anything to that? I do think there's something to that, but I also worry about kind of the whack-a-mole effect where if we're going sector by sector, once we solve a problem that's specific to a single sector, then a new problem emerges and we don't have any over-encompassing statute the way Europe has that would resolve issues no matter uh, the sector that it's being used. So I think you can that really goes both ways. It's nice to be nimble and have that flexibility. 
But there is some value in guidelines that apply regardless of, of which sector is using the technology. Yeah. Another thing that caught my eye here is just the kind of the simple fact that so many of the global leaders in technology are U.S.-based. And so it seems to me like it's almost a point of pride that the U.S. wants to take a leadership role in this. It, like, it's almost aspirational more than practical. <laughs> does, does that track? Yeah, I I think that does track. Uh, I think the fact that a lot of this optimism is coming from executive orders is telling to me, uh, because as I said, those are administration-specific and can be reversed. It's not always an easy process to reverse them, uh, but you can reverse them without any intervening act of a legislature, which is just not the case if you were to pass a comprehensive uh, AI statute the way the European Union is. So just by definition, you have less stability uh, and less certainty about future outcomes uh, and regulation. Yeah, I guess a lot of this also comes from what we've learned uh, having been through GDPR and how in many ways GDPR became the global standard by the restrictions that it has and affecting global companies. Uh, They really had no choice but to follow GDPR and the easiest way to come about that was to adopt those policies globally. So you could see the advantage of being the leader here, of, of having your ideas rather than someone else's become the global standard. I think there's a ton of value to that idea, particularly because these companies are located here that might have more of a direct impact on the development of the policy. Uh, So I think that aspiration is good. I think the goal here uh, expressed in this article of having the U.S. take on a leadership role in AI regulation is laudable. I hope that uh, as a government, we follow through on that. I just think it's restricted by the uh, types of institutions that we have in a way that GDPR is not. And I know I'm one of those people who always eschews the uh, interesting technological issues by talking about the minutia of how government processes work. But I think that um, is, is important context here, that you still don't have Congress enacting a broad statute regulating AI policy. It's a patchwork. It's sector-specific. It's dependent on executive orders that don't always have proper enforcement authority. So it just, it leads to, I think, uh, some proper skepticism that we really will take the lead here. But maybe once again, I'll be proven wrong. Yeah. Well, it's, I think it's interesting that you you and I are, seem to be of like mind in our skepticism here, uh, despite uh, everything that this article lays out. Yeah, I think you and I are natural skeptics, uh, and we've become <laughs> quite right. cynical. We, our, our cynicism feeds off one another. Like the, the, Right, the weight of the world has crushed our spirit. <laughs> yeah, and also we've had so many discussions about this, and people right. ask, like, oh, when are, when are we going to get a federal data privacy law? Like, we've been there. We've been close to enacting a federal data privacy law, and you and I meet the next week to record our podcast, and it still hasn't happened, so... Yeah, I mean, you are. Uh, this is going to be a Muppets reference. So, what are the old guys in the theater who are constantly complaining? Oh, Statler and Waldorf. Yes, yeah, that's us. Yeah, that's basically us. Yeah. <laughs> okay, very good. I'll accept that. All right. Well, again, the the article is titled "The U.S. Plans to Lead the Way on Global AI Policy." That is uh, over on Lawfare, and we'll have a link to that in the show notes. It's a thoughtful article. Well worth your time. 
And now, a message from CyberBit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then, you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need CyberBit. CyberBit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills, all using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. CyberBit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live-fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com cyberwire. All right, Ben, I recently had the pleasure of speaking with Harvey Jang. He is vice president, deputy general counsel and chief privacy officer from Cisco. And we are sharing uh, some of his privacy concerns about generative AI and some of the challenges that businesses face when it comes to trust. Here's my conversation with Harvey Jang. Yeah, so this actually started the privacy benchmark study. I think we're in our seventh year of doing it. Uh, We really wanted to come up with some thought leadership in the privacy space and really validate some of the thinking um, that we knew to be true as privacy professionals. And we knew that privacy was much more than a check-the-box compliance exercise. We knew that it needed to be treated as a fundamental human right and a business imperative. But you know, it's like, it's not what you know, it's what you can prove. And so we wanted to go out there and, and test the market, see what others are feeling about privacy, some of the key issues uh, over the years. Are they deriving business value from privacy programs? So it's uh, something we wanted to probe into uh, just to try to understand where other companies and our peer companies and competitors even, how are they feeling about privacy? And so this was actually a anonymous survey in a sense. We don't know who responded. Uh, They don't know that the survey was coming from Cisco. Um, We surveyed, I think, a couple thousand people around the world hitting about 12 different geographies. Well, let's dig into some of the details here. I mean, what what way are the winds blowing when it comes to organizations and, and how they deal with privacy? Yeah, it was interesting to see. I think one of the things that stood out over the years that people actually like privacy laws. Uh, <laughs> that was uh, <laughs> imagine that, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, you know, on the one hand, you know, the with GDPR right uh, launching, uh, I guess being final in 2016 with enforcement of 2018 coming down the pike, that really put privacy on the map. Um, and I would say every privacy law since 2016 has used GDPR as a reference. Uh, sometimes copying it, sometimes deviating from it deliberately, but at least looking at it. And it's surprising, right, that companies and organizations actually uh, like privacy laws. Uh, I think in some sense, maybe it's setting a a consistent baseline uh, around the world as more adopt uh, interoperable privacy legislation that are more similar to each other than different, which is good. And yeah, I was surprised by that, (laughs) that number. Yeah. I mean, are you find organizations are are being more proactive or reactive these days? I think it definitely has shifted to companies needing to be more proactive, uh, right? I think 
also with these laws really causing calling for a risk-based approach to privacy, it's not always clear what compliance means. And so there has to be some uh, proactive analysis and understanding of the risk climate and evaluating what can and should be done to prevent the crisis. You know, obviously the the hot topic these days is generative AI and, and the report digs into some details there. What's the current understanding of how organizations are are dealing with this new reality? Yeah, actually, Cisco published a a different report where they uh, surveyed over 8,000 people around the world. It's called the AI Readiness Index. And I think the numbers were shocking, right? Like 97% feel that it is a business priority to embed and use AI uh, in their organization and take advantage of this new technology. But on the flip side, only 14% percent of the respondents said that they're ready to embrace this. Um, Similarly, I think in our benchmark study, we're seeing that people are excited about AI and the promise and the opportunities there. But there is a bit of reticence and caution uh, as they embrace this new technology. Yeah, I I noticed in the report that uh, just over 25 percent of organizations, in fact, it was 27 percent, have actually banned the use of generative AI and it seems like they're really concerned about privacy risks. Yeah. That, that, so this study w- was a survey that was conducted in the summer of 2023. And so that was you know, just in the wake of ChatGPT and, and other of these LLMs launching in, into the wild. Um, we saw the Italian regulators come right out of the box and say, you know what, you can't use this. Um, we're going to ban it in Italy because we don't think it's compliant with GDPR and our privacy requirements. I think a ruling uh, or notice went out this week again, uh, reiterating that. Um, and so I think uh, OpenAI has 30 days to respond and demonstrate that the data that was collected to feed and train their models comply with GDPR and, and privacy laws. And so, yeah, I think right out of the box, there is a a mix and a a fear of this technology or people not fully understanding the limits uh, and as they were jumping into it. And there were some horror stories uh, that hit the press. So I think media did do a good job of raising awareness that when you put things into these public tools, you are feeding the beast. (laughs) You are uh, (laughs) putting your information uh, in some companies. I think it was kind of notoriously inadvertently people put in source code uh, and highly confidential business information into these tools, not realizing that they were going to be part of the training set and the models. Now, things have changed and evolved. And and, uh, of course, for a fee, you can pay for a private version that will allow you to benefit from the large language models, but not contribute to it. It strikes me as being uh, irresistible. I mean, the, the, the business case, the amount of time that folks can save making use of these tools. Uh, I, I can't help wondering if it's just ripe for um, uh, shadow IT. Yeah, and so that's that's always been a problem, right? Whenever there's new technology out there and the democratization of technology has really made it extremely challenging for our IT department to contain their environment. And so you're kind of at this uh, crossroads in this quandary, right? Like mm-hmm. You set up a safe environment because people are going to play with it. At Cisco, we decided to set up a safe environment. And so we have enterprise versions of, of these popular tools, um, co-pilots and various chat tools. So our employee population have a safe place to play uh, and to innovate using these tools uh, with 
we don't allow it for highly confidential or restricted content, but uh, you can put some information in there, help you write copy a little bit better before something gets published uh, and various other use cases for uh, these new technologies. One of the other elements that caught my eye in the report was this uh, this gap between uh, businesses, privacy priorities, but what consumers are expecting from those businesses. So there's there seems to be a little bit of a gap there. Yeah, I think it's really just a, a matter of perspective or which angle that you're you're coming from, right? And so for companies, it's good, compliance is going to be important, uh, right? You have to comply with the laws where you choose to do business. And uh, privacy laws, uh, I was saying there's over 160 countries with omnibus privacy legislation and, you know, exponentially more sectoral laws covering how to deal with personal data. And so compliance is going to be important to uh, a company, whereas like a consumer might look at something the most important to them is transparency and explainability, which also happens to be one of the top compliance requirements when you're dealing with AI and privacy and really honing down on those principles of transparency, fairness, and accountability. And so I don't think there's too much of a disconnect. I mean, the top issues were similar, but I think it did really highlight the need for better explainability and transparency when you're using AI tools. And I think that's what's going to help build trust. And I think across the board, consumers want to see a human in the loop. They want to see a responsible AI framework set up at the company and having bias audits and making sure that the AI is operating as designed. And these things we're seeing uh, getting embodied in new draft legislation, uh, especially like the EU AI Act coming out and various other pronouncements and principles on the legislative front with respect to AI really are calling for these same principles. I'm curious, you know, from your perspective, the the position of a chief privacy officer at an organization with the the scale, the scope, and the reach of a company like Cisco, what are you empowered to do? And what do you consider your charge to be? Yeah, so for privacy... My team oversees and I guess is responsible with setting the strategy, uh, looking at both opportunity and risks and compliance related to personal data. And so we set up our program to have a three-part mission where compliance, of course, is there. You got to comply with the laws where you choose to operate. And so that's the first pillar of our program. But I think the bigger one that is more consuming is the market access piece. We have to build and design our products and services to be trustworthy. Right? And we have to make them with the features and functionality so our customers can comply with the law. And that's like next level challenging, right? So when we're looking at our own compliance, we get to decide what's compliant and what's enough to meet the requirement. And it's our interpretation of the legal framework there. When it's a customer and you have thousands, tens of thousands of customers, all from different cultures, all with their own perspective of what they need to do to comply, uh, because the law doesn't tell you exactly what it means to be transparent. Uh, A customer decides how much information they need from you before they trust you. And there's wide variance when you have customers that are in the general public, a student using WebEx, for example, or a CIO with an electrical engineering degree using our Cat9K. And we have to be able to explain our products and services to that wide range of customer base. And so that piece is probably the bigger one that's a little bit more time consuming and challenging. And then our third pillar is around differentiation, where these types of reports, these research uh, 
reports that we do, the surveys that we run, engagement externally with regulators and standards bodies to really drive what uh, privacy should be uh, in the industry and uh, as a regulatory framework as well. And so I think our, the charter started with that and how it started to bleed into AI or actually we look at privacy as a foundation uh, for AI and responsible AI, just as we use security as a foundation for privacy. And we built our privacy program on top of uh, what we were already doing for security, what we built in the framework for privacy in terms of privacy impact assessments and looking at how we're handling personal data. We use those frameworks and models and tools and overlaid the responsible AI work on top of that. And so it is a foundational piece. Like AI in this world is not new to privacy. It's been in there at least since 1995. Uh, the EU directive talked about automated decision-making that has material or legal impacts on an individual. And that's also embodied in GDPR. And so it naturally privacy took the lead when this first came out. But as we're looking at it and the risk profile with respect to AI, it goes far beyond privacy, right? There's, it could even be an existential risk at stake here, right? If, if things go wrong, um, horribly wrong with the use of AI. And so there's a lot of opportunity, a lot of ambiguity also in the copyright and intellectual property. Do you even have the right to have trained the model? with data that was scraped or pulled from the web and all those questions that are unanswered. And so the risk cases and uh, use cases of AI are different. And so we had to expand. And privacy is a critical stakeholder. We're, we're in it. We're involved in our responsible AI committee and setting these things up. But another group is taking the charge of looking after responsible AI and responsible innovation overall. My perception is that it, it seems like Folks can be one of two minds when it comes to a lot of this. One is a kind of a feeling of resignation. You know, you're faced with that EULA before you agree to use someone's product and there's no way you're going to be able to read it. And you just kind of sigh and you click OK and away you go. Right. <laughs> right. But then on the other. Right. But then on the other hand, you've got people and, and I, I would put you in this category who are out there kind of trying to fight the good fight to make sure that the regulation we have is useful and, and good and, and, and actionable. Right, right. And that's where I think some of the legislation has been shifting more towards accountability, right? And even if no one reads your EULA or they're just clicking accept and just going along with it, you should still do the right thing with the data, right? And be careful to protect it and respect it. And that's how trust is built, right? When people know that you handle their data appropriately. You're not doing bad things with it. You're, you're doing what you say you're going to do and you're just delivering the product or service they asked for, then it's a good relationship. It's, you know, things go awry when they're surprised. I, you know, I think people only like surprises on birthdays and Christmas, right? But I don't like surprises when uh, on new uses of data, unless it directly inures to their benefit, but still they want to know. And that's what we are seeing in the consumer study as well, that this transparency piece is uh, paramount. People want to know what's happening with their data. And uh, interesting conversation uh, with someone, certainly uh, one of the companies that uh, has uh, a lot at stake here when it comes to privacy. 
Yeah, I think there's so many issues that come with generative AI, things like bias. I know I've talked about it from an academic setting, uh, but and we've talked about intellectual property, but I think concerns around privacy are, pro- it, that's probably the most acute issue and the most unresolved issue. Uh, so I was just really glad to hear an enlightening conversation on it. Yeah. All right. Our thanks to Harvey Jang from Cisco for joining us. We do appreciate him taking the time. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. That is our show. We want to thank all of you for listening. A quick reminder that N2K Strategic Workforce Intelligence optimizes the value of your biggest investment, your people. We make you smarter about your team while making your team smarter. Learn more at n2k.com. Our executive producer is Jennifer Iben. This show is edited by Trey Hester. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Ben Yellen. Thanks for listening. <laughs>